I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, uh, polluted, I guess, with uh, some kind of weird virus, bionic. You know, that's not real upbeat and inspirational for our listeners, although it may be factual. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we're we always big on the upbeat and inspirational and short on facts. <laughs> that's us. Not very content-driven. Well, you're going to have to get closer to your mic All here, right. buddy, if you're feeling under. And I you just know, don't want to. I don't want to pollute it. I don't want to get you sick. I don't want to get pyro. First mate over here, sick. Well, I appreciate that. I know he yeah. appreciates that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I think part of the reason why Tom's feeling a little under the weather is because we had a very, very intense weekend this weekend. Mm-hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you again here at Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Um, what were we up to this weekend, Mr. Bionic? Well, I was just hoping I made it through my talk without collapsing. But we were speaking at the Politics of Religion Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I'll tell you, man, it was awesome. I know. The it Lord was, really blessed, didn't he? The short, the short, here, if you don't want to hear about it and you just want to fast forward over the sort of the detailed rundown, let me just, let me just save you. It was awesome. The Lord moved, uh, people got saved, people got baptized. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So, uh, I guess, I Mike, do you want to give a sort of a more... Everybody learned a lot. Yeah, give well, a little bit more detailed rundown. A lot of people that people would be familiar with from this show spoke. Mm-hmm. Both you and I spoke. I spoke on the history of the separation of church and state and biblical things for that. Mm-hmm. You spoke on the history of false flag terror mm-hmm. like, from like 85 to what, 45, something like yeah, that? Yeah, 45 to 85. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris White gave a talk. Actually, it was a prophecy talk mm-hmm. uh, about Matthew 24. You know what's cool about that? What? It's like I ran into some people who were pre, post, mid, amil. Yeah. Didn't know what they were, and they all said, that's like the most concise prophecy talk I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, s- someone else who was with us, Robert Hyde, uh-huh. you know, one of our show favorites, who went uh-huh. along, rode in Future Mobile with me while you and Adam were uh, uh, in our convoy heading mm-hmm. up from Nashville to Fort Wayne. We got ourselves a convoy rolling through the night. I think it's trucking through the night. But I'm, Who says I'm quoting the same song? Oh, could be. Could be a non-C.W. McCall song. Yeah. Anyway, Robert Hyde said, uh, you know, he's taught, he's a pastor and educator. Uh-huh. He taught me senior Bible in the book of Revelation, by uh-huh. the way, for oh. a year, the book of Revelation. Yeah. He's taught all these years. He said all these years of, of hearing, he says, Chris White's teaching on it was the best he'd ever heard. Wow. He, the best prophecy teaching he'd ever seen. The best put together. Yeah. I, so. I, and that's not the only person I heard that from. Yeah. I heard that from a couple of guys who went there and they said that their big thing was Bible prophecy. Yeah. They said, we love Bible prophecy. You can't get enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, almost it was like word for word they got some even though that wasn't technically what I was thinking the conference was about but yeah. it turned out to be good anyway uh, Andrew Hoffman always knocks out of the park yeah. and uh, his he talk on mass propaganda I, I don't know I'm just so excited about him I wish he could churn out a whole lot more because I'd like to have him on a lot more to talk yeah. about what he does mm-hmm. and uh, Russ Dizdar uh, came and gave a uh, talk about the nature of politics and the future in the last days. Yeah, and uh, I think the, the name of it, I can't, I can't remember the exact name of it. It was something like uh, the government that ends the world. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, but um, 
in my well, uh, actually, uh, PID Radio uh, prepared a video talking about dominionism that they sent, a very brief one, but they sent something to kick us off. Mm-hmm. So it was just an awesome, awesome conference. Uh, there were about 85 to 90 people there. Um, people were able to get little display things, you know, this and that, videos and things. I want to thank, I think there's probably... I don't know, seven people or so that pick up the two book sets that we have for Future mm-hmm. Quake. And I want to yeah. thank mm-hmm. them for doing that. And we uh, had a, um, I, I had the opportunity to uh, to talk with one of the cleaning ladies there at the at the place yeah. where we had it. The, yeah. The, and she uh, she came in. and She said, "Oh yeah, I'm working on a degree in religious studies just for my own personal wow. enlightenment." What? I, I'm not familiar with any of these topics. And uh, we talked wow. some, and I ended up I ended up uh, getting her. The two, the two books. She got the two, yeah. two books that. Well, she got the Andrew Hoffman, two of Andrew Hoffman's books, mm-hmm. and then she got um, uh, uh, a Chris Pinto DVD. Okay, okay. And she was, that'll give her something to chew on right there, just to <laughs> kick off the. Yeah. Shame she couldn't got the Black Awakening, some light reading to go to bed at night. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but uh, the Lord moved. There was a great harmony of spirit, and you know the common feeling from everybody was. Hey, everybody, wherever we live, thinks we're nuts, thinks we're crazy. Yeah. Uh, we're so the meeting of the with, crazy people. So glad to be with other people who are like us, mm-hmm. that are interested in the same thing. So tremendous amount of fellowship together. You know, even when we went down to our little breakfast break room at the hotel, that little tiny room downstairs, and all these people started following in mm-hmm. that were future quake, futurians, which like to say hate all of them out there. Uh, it, wasn't, it was almost like heaven, wasn't it? It was cool, man. Talking about the kind of stuff we talk about. And I know there's a lot of our listeners out there who, for a lot of reasons, can't make it. Which, mm-hmm. one thing we all have in common between the the host and the guest, <coughs> other than the coffee, mm-hmm. is the fact that none of us are really, really wealthy or yeah, like, big benefactors. Yeah, we've got all that thing down. are real benefactors. So a lot of times it's a money thing for people or can't get off work. So I don't want to rub it in for those who want to come but couldn't. But mm-hmm. it was a special time. And it was so neat when we found out that a couple of people accepted Christ during mm-hmm. it. Yeah. People came forward during our discussion time again and said, uh, asking questions about baptism. And Russ Dizdar volunteered to baptize them, and so did Chris White. And so uh-huh. we all just took a big clot of us. And it was almost like midnight, wasn't it, Saturday night? Yeah. And we went 11, to the wee hours. 11.30 and all that. And I'll yeah. tell you what. You, went right down to the hotel pool. I'll even, I'll even give you, like, I don't know if it's a one-up or... Just like, and now the rest of the story. Yeah. I got back to the hotel, it was about 12, mm-hmm. and I, I was really hungry for some reason. So yeah. I walked down to this IHOP, and I sat down, and I ordered a like a steak sandwich or something. Mm-hmm. And this dude sitting across from me, like in the other booth across yeah. the aisle, was sitting there listening to some stuff. And I tried to talk with him a little bit. He kind of wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And this other guy, obviously knew, sits down. In the booth, in the booth next to him, and they start talking. The first thing out of his mouth is, "Did you hear about? Did you listen to Coast to Coast last night?" Yeah. And and uh, I kind of got my ears, uh, yeah, pricked up a little bit. And he says, uh, "He said, no, 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 I, I don't know." Yeah. And uh, he says, "Well, you should have, Linda Moulton Howe." And uh, I said, "What do you guys know about aliens?" And we talk some, and talk mm-hmm. some, and talk some, and. Um, Anyway, I tried to sort of give the whole spiritual thing, mm-hmm. and I finally said, you know, there seems to be a large body of evidence that shows that people can cast them out in the name of Jesus. Yeah. And uh, the 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 first guy that was there originally uh-huh. uh, kind of stopped and looked at me, 
He says, where do I find out more about that? I said, yeah. you need to go to CE4 and check those guys out. Right. Um, and uh, he, he said, okay, I want to remember that. And I tried to get him to talk uh, about it a little bit more, but he didn't want to talk about it. But That sounds like a guy on the edge, a guy who's getting some oppression. And yeah, maybe he'll think yeah, the Lord sent yeah. you there. And I, I, I kind of I told him, I, I said, you know, I mean, if, if something's ever happened, man, you just call out, you know, just say, yeah. by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, you have no yeah. right to be here. And he says, it's good to know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Who knows this out of heaven if we'll hear the rest of the story of that, you know? Hopefully, hopefully it was useful for it to yeah, do in some way. Right, you know? right. And, uh, you know, our friends at CE4 might encounter this guy not knowing, however, how he got yeah. got there, you know? You know some crazy guy from Fort Wayne? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, you know, like I said, we had, uh, we, we all strolled in, the whole group in, to uh, see the baptisms. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I, can you remember all the names? I remember Adrian and May Potter, who I hope are listening. Uh huh. Adrian and May. And you other, know, I've got all the, the other gentlemen. I um, if you think about it, I, some I, other gentlemen. You know, I could like totally draw. Them. I could draw a picture of them, but I can't remember their Just names. Just briefly met them. We'll yeah. find it. Pray for them, mm-hmm. listeners. If you all pray for that, these would be discipled, mm-hmm. and that they would be part of our family, and we get to know them better, and they grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. and also the two who have accepted Christ as well, too. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty cool to see uh, Chris White. Uh, uh, one of the gentlemen asked him to baptize him, and he just wallowed right out there in his jeans. Yeah, I know. And, uh, it was like the right stuff in front that he of wore White. To, yeah, the stuff that he wore to, um, you know, that <laughs> stage. He's like, all right, well, you know, here we go. Yeah, you know, he just, nobody ever taught him the way that, like, big-time preachers yeah, are supposed like, to act. You don't understand, man. Yeah. People are going to, like, think that, you know... People, you're not going to be pleasing men if you do it that way. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of men pleasing going on, but no. there was a lot of Futurian pleasing because everybody seemed to be pretty happy yeah. there, and it was just an incredible time, and it was neat to go with some of these folk and be like a rest is darn other people like this and, you know, go in and eat together with them and I'll encounter tell you, you other know, people. I'll, I'll throw a compliment your way. What? Here. Somebody somebody sent me an email uh, about just just saying how much they enjoyed the conference and everything. Yeah. And they said, and that Dr. Future, uh, speaking to me, said, that Dr. Future, you're one lucky guy because he embodies like how we're supposed to be to other Christians and other people more than anybody I've ever met. No. Yes. No. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm not going to print the email well, because it's got the name on it. But, okay. You know, that's Man. that's some listener email like I can right s- off the bat I there. can send him some emails to people who would dispute that. <laughs> In spades, and they know who they are. They're listening right now. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, listening, jotting yeah. down furiously. And you know, maybe they have a point too. They see a side of me that uh, is not too good. But yeah. as I tell you, thanks for the encouragement. Yeah, man. Um, I, one thing I will say for our listeners, there will be DVDs coming out shortly of these, mm-hmm. and the information is not your regular pablum that you hear at a lot of conferences. Same old rehash stuff. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of really new, cutting edge material that came out just in this conference. That had a lot of people talking, and I suggest you get these when they come out. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing else, I have one last thing to say about any other points that you want to make before we get into our news. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I know the point you're going to make. Go ahead okay. and make it. Yeah. Um, Brother C.J. Hampton, who has had a show on uh, Sword of the Spirit on Revelations Radio Network, who was felt led of the Lord to organize this conference... And he stepped out on faith. And I'm going to talk about some things he probably doesn't want me to talk about. 
Um, I know he wouldn't. Um, which yeah, I'm gonna have <laughs> hey, it to I'm do sure that. I'm sure he's listening, going, yeah. well, um, yeah. uh, um, he he stepped out on faith and did this and encountered incredible opposition from day one of all types uh, that tried to stymie this and make this not happen and. Um, it, it got to be at some points where it would have really made sense probably to fold in the towel on this, but he decided to forge ahead anyway, and we've all been praying with him on it, and things happened, and it was a success, but in the process, and I think the economy and the fact that most of us in our community are pretty poor and can't go or can't leave work, uh, our attendance was great. It was, it was 80 to 90 people, but, um, it's still pretty big hit on him. I mean pretty big hit yeah <laughs> very notable hit mm-hmm. um and he's not complaining and he's not he hasn't asked us anything to do this. he hasn't asked anything um some of us are trying to find some ways to help soften some things because he was faithful to the lord so i'm just going to say this once and if you all feel the lord hear you through this i don't want to embarrass him but if you want to join in and help us i kind of do want to embarrass him to be okay honest, well that's but, fine yeah to to help fill the gap uh, he stepped on faith and did something that will have a legacy to it. First of all, two new people entered the kingdom for yeah. eternity. We've we, got everything four we could have taught was probably Christ. incorrect, but two new, the yeah, Lord was there because people thing. got saved. You know. But there will be a legacy of the the material that goes on from this. But um, we don't want to forget about a need that CJ has that he is again not advertising. So just don't tell him, you all. Don't say it's him. But if you want to go to our donate button on Future Quake. And if you want to earmark something yeah. to help him with this, uh, just put that in the comment section. Mm-hmm. You'd be doing a special blessing that, again, he's not asking. He he, he trusts in the Lord for everything, mm-hmm. but we're his brothers and sisters. So um, I'll leave it at that if the Lord tells you to do That's that. Perfect. So, That's perfect. So let's good. go on to some stories. Do you want to jump in some stories you want me Man, to? Man, I know, I know what's coming from you, so I want to hear yours first. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, mine is a continuing saga. Back I know. On I, this, that's why the, I want to hear it. The I'm, dead horse that I'm beating. And in fact, I'll tell you what. I, I will tell you something else that some one of our listeners told me. Okay. He says, what you guys have covered in the last month is some of the best stuff ever. Really? Best future quakes ever. Yeah. More than one person told me that. Really? And I, I think they're crazy. But okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. And that's like that's why I live way like out in the middle of nowhere listeners. because I think all of our listeners are well, scary. Well, um, I, I, I've gotten enough, and I don't know, this trail might just get cold all of a sudden, but I've gotten so much now that I can't do it all tonight. Uh-huh. Uh, it's going to be, we'll just push the ball for it a little bit. Okay. Oh, got, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, and the stuff that I won't get to tonight is even bigger. It brings some, some bigger people back into this. It's well, pretty far out. Well, so. I, my, I, you know, I gotta say, I'll, I'll give you some honest. Maybe I should just give give the floor over to you because I don't have. No, I didn't think okay, my stories no. were that good today. This yeah, week. it's been a weird week. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me just say to catch up, those of you, you need to go back and listen to about the last month's worth, where we've been talking this saga about the players who are trying to ride ride this anti Sharia thing in the Christian community mm-hmm. into a holy war, and it, we've got CIA spooks, uh, guys like uh, uh, James Woolsey. We got Frank Gaffney and others. Uh, last week we talked about the funding for these videos that are being sent out. Like 28 million were put in newspapers mm-hmm. uh, by a group called the Clarion Fund, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the Clarion Fund uh, is largely supported by a number of groups, and I'm going to talk about some of them. But one of them was something called Aish Hatora, uh, which is basically it 
to me it's like a virtual front for the Israeli government. It's sort of a seems, external seems government. Obvious, yeah. Uh, they're they're they've there are places built right next to the Western Wall. They've got a huge building of the temple on their roof, sort of facing where the Muslims are in the Western Wall. Yeah. And we talked about them. Go back last week if you want to hear more about them. But we talked about Frank Gavney, his uh, his particular center, his group that's all about this and how they're affiliated with these groups. Well, here's a little bit more. I went back and looked at uh, Gaffney's earlier book. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be that I'm exaggerating, that he would be seeing this whole battle in terms of, like, you know, military, you know, like uh, confrontation, physical confrontation. So I thought I'd better go look and see, really, if, if, if I'm just extrapolating too much in that. So okay. his book on this topic he'd written before is called War Footing, Ten Steps America Must Prevail in the War for the Free World. So I don't know. Does that would that reinforce that fact that he's looking for very military peaceful. confrontation? I'm sure, it's a spiritual thing that we just don't yeah. understand. I looked for this out of out of uh, Amazon.com, his site. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it, it's being offered along with uh, Sharia: The Threat to America, an exercise in competitive analysis report of Team B2 by William J. Boykin, General Boykin. So Team B. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've got so much information I can tell you about Team B. You know stuff about Team B? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you want me to do Do you want me to do that now or just I don't later? care. All right. I well, let me care. tell you. Okay, there was this guy named There was this guy named Joe Strauss. Okay. Uh, he was a philosopher, right? Back in the 50s. His whole thing now, was Are you sure this is the same people? Yeah. This, I'll tell you what team the Team B that I know. Okay. Okay, so this guy he was a Straussian, right? He yeah. was the he was the father of the neoconservative movement, right, right? Right. Back in the early seventies, a lot of these Straussian political theorists, they didn't like Kissinger because he saw he they mm-hmm. they were philosophically at odds because yeah. he saw everything he was more pragmatist, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He saw it in, you know, this nexus of changing alliances and stuff and we right. always had to be on the top of this making the best deal kind of a thing. Very very pragmatic, you might say. All right. Um, so what they did is they got together with a bunch of guys, including a Soviet, a Soviet, um, like, he was the guy they always called in for Soviet, when they wanted the mm-hmm. Soviet mindset, a guy, uh, a guy named Richard Pipes. Yeah. And they established a thing called Team B, right, to take and assess the readiness of the Soviet intelligence. And uh, so... Could it have been Daniel Pipes? Is that possible? Uh I think it was Richard. Okay. Because I, I, I have some information on a Daniel Ooh. Pipes. I mean, that's not a common name. No. No. Uh, at any rate, so they got together with, with all this, this, this Pipes gentleman and uh, uh, several other people that were all mm-hmm. part of the Straussian yeah. uh, political, political theory thought thing. And they, their, their goal was to independently assess the military capabilities of the Soviet Union. And so what they did is they went out and they said, okay, well, here's the submarine fleet. Well, obviously ours has all these capabilities, and this is what we know of as theirs, and we can't see how they can counter what we have going mm-hmm. on. So what do we do? They said, well, because... Just because we don't see how they can count, we they can counter our mm-hmm. our Soviet submarine threat. That's not the point. They must have something that is so advanced that we can't even detect it. And so they put that in their report. They were saying that about the Russians. About the in Soviets. other words, they were sending up the Russians as a boogeyman to sell stuff uh-huh. that sells arms and uh-huh. stuff like that. And, if you got to set uh, them up. Yeah, there's a great there's a I saw a great interview of this it's lady. A good thing that could never happen over the. Islamic menace. Well, um, 
Exactly. And this 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 lady who was this lady who worked for the CIA who was responsible for receiving the report mm-hmm. and reading it for conclusions, the committee that was responsible mm-hmm. for figuring it all out, she said it was the most ludicrous thing she'd ever saw. They they'd yeah. look at their they'd look at the fact that they couldn't accurately launch a specific type of missile and team B would say, Well, they can't launch it, but that just means that they have something that's so secret and so powerful we can't even detect it. And she would say that's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, they would—they were literally making stuff up as they as mm-hmm. they went. This is two years of research that, uh, you know, we couldn't use. And we found out later that that was true about the Russians. That we drastically everything overrated that TV everything. Everything said yeah. was was false. You know what's funny? I think okay. from what you described that you may be referring to the same people. And this is the wow. one that refers to using that same technique for Sharia. Okay. Mm-hmm. But back to the description of this book, War Footing. The editorial review says, this is the book the enemy doesn't want you to read. We are in a war for our survival. War footing is a blueprint uh, to not just survive this threat, but vanquish it. And that's Dr. Monica Crowley. That well, let me, let me give you one quick quote from, uh, from Strauss. I can't give you a quote, yeah. but his, his central political thesis was yeah. that there's no absolute morality. So the idea was is you have to find uh, the people that rule. The reason they rule is because they recognize that there's no absolute morality, and thusly, uh, in the absence of an external threat, uh, have the have the uh, intellectual turpitude or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, uh, moral fiber, or uh, they don't mm-hmm. believe in morality, right. but they would they're able to realize that there's no morality, so they can invent an external threat to galvanize the populace, and that's what makes them capable of ruling. I need you to send that information to me because that's a central tenet of what I'll be writing on. All right. Okay, so, mm-hmm. and I'll give you some attribution. I might call you Mr. X, but anyway, I do need to do that. Okay. Okay, um, okay here's, here's another quote on this book. America has been at war for years, but until now, it has not been clear with whom or precisely for what. And we've not been using the full resources we need to win. With the publication of War Footing, uh, lead author by Frank Gaffney, it not only becomes clear who the enemy is and how high the stakes are, but exactly how we can prevail. War Footing shows that we're engaged in nothing less than a war for the free world. This is a fight to the death with Islamofascists. Um, that's not too extreme, is it? No. Uh, is Muslim extremists driven by a totalitarian political ideology? that, like Nazism and communism before it, is determined to destroy freedom and the people who love it. Uh, Mr. Gaffney's esteemed college offer ten specific steps that Americans, as individuals and communities, can take to ensure their way of life and safety and the future well-being of their children and grandchildren. They include detailed recommendations how to know the enemy, really support U.S. troops, provide for the country's energy security, now, part of the reason they're interested in this, like when um, James Woolsey spoke here, uh-huh. he has a major investment in a company that provides alternative energy. So they're oh. saying this is a political patriotic thing to invest in these things. But, by the way, it was Leo Strauss, not Joe Strauss. Yeah, Sorry. Leo Strauss. And I apologize. Yeah, and actually, it was, I think Irving Crystal, who's Bill Crystal's uh-huh. dad, was the one that really revived things more recently. Uh-huh. Um, Leo, well, Irving Crystal makes no bones about the fact that he got most of his political philosophy from uh, Leo Strauss. Yeah, yeah. And then Bill Crystal is like the daily star of Fox News. Yeah. Um, it says, stop investing in terror. Equip the country for war at home. What's that mean? That's scary. Uh, counter the mega threat and EMP attack. Secure the U.S. borders against illegal immigration. Wage political warfare 
Looks to me they've got that going. Launch regional initiatives and wield effective diplomacy. Okay. Uh, this is a highly readable and definitive owner's manual for the war for the free world. Whether we like it or not, every American owns a stake in this outcome. War footing tells us how to make sure it comes out right. It says Frank Gaffney, the author, is one of the most thoughtful and visible national security experts of our time. He held senior positions in the Reagan Defense Department and on staffs of leading Democrat and Republican senators. Since he founded the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Security Policy in 1988, Mr. Gaffney and his organization have become widely recognized by policymakers, the media, and the public alike as go-to sources for timely, informed, and articulate analysis of current defense and foreign policy developments. Mm-hmm. Under Mr. Gaffney's leadership, the Center for Security Policy has promoted policies consistent with the Reagan philosophy of peace through strength. To advance this agenda, the organization brings together and works with many of America's finest security policy practitioners, CIA spooks, and other experts. As a group, they comprise the special forces in the war of ideas. Hmm. No rules when you're in special forces, right? War footing is their playbook. Amongst those who have contributed brilliant analyses and common sense recommendations of war footing are, are James Woolsey, Victor Han- Davis Hansen, General Tom McInerney, Paul, General Paul Vallely. These are the two guys you always see when they start bombing people. They always bring them on TV. Uh, uh, see, Carolyn Glick and Michael Waller, Michael Rubin, others. Their inputs of 20 other contributors help make the strategy for winning the war for the free world as readable as it is needed. Well, James Woolsey is a um, is is uh, according to several articles that I've I've read is makes no bones about being a Straussian political philosopher. And Paul yeah. Wolfowitz is like the archetype. Yeah, which I believe you mentioned. Yeah, earlier, we right? we talked about uh, you know Woolsey was the one that came at the NRB while we were outside reading our prayer of intercession. He was the one pushing. For this, we got to go fight the Muslim Sharia thing in the NRB. Oh, oh I thought Gaffney. you said he came outside. I was like, I don't remember no, anybody no, no, coming no, outside. Um, I mean, I realized I was intense, but, you know, yeah. focus on the prayers. I saw some notes some people wrote about this. Uh, it says, in the latter category, whatever one's political philosophy, and there's enough in the book to offend everyone, I can't imagine anyone rejecting Gaffney's opening argument in his book that this is your owner's manual for the war for the free world. Uh, and I think that's just the basic on that. So that just sort of reinforces sort of his sort of general approach and attitude toward mm-hmm. the issue. Now, the Center for Security Policy, which is Gaffney's baby, okay? This is the uh, thing that he runs. Uh, let's see. This is something that he wrote. Oh, this is something he wrote about uh, on on that website about intervention into Libya, an ominous precedent for Israel. Mm-hmm. There are many reasons to be worried about the bridge leap that Obama administration has undertaken in its war with Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Out will all end is just one of them. Uh, particularly uh, concerning is the prospect of what we might call the Gaddafi precedent will be used in the not so distant future to justify and threaten the use of U.S. military forces against an American ally, Israel. Um, Accordingly, hard as it may be to believe, given the United States' long-standing role as Israel's principal ally and protector, Mr. Obama acts in accordance with the Gaddafi precedent. He warns Israel that it must take immediate steps to dismantle its unwanted presence in internationally recognized state borders. 
So this is something that he's sort of being concerned at mostly about is not so much how the threat it is to America, but a threat to Israel. And this now this guy pronounces his name, I believe, Peeps. It's P-I-P-E-S, Daniel Peeps. Okay. And he's one of the guys who works with him on these projects, too. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking with him. He's a guy you see frequently on Fox News. He's part of this whole, <coughs> part of this whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in fact, um, I've mentioned before that some of the ones who are funding this group for Mr. Gaffney is... Um, um, the Israeli group, mm-hmm. Aisha Tor, who's working with them on the videos, mm-hmm. and then you've got like the Scaife Foundations, the billionaire, mm-hmm. and we'll, if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about them. But here, wow. here's Daniel Peeps. That's how they show it's pronounced. He's an American writer and political blogger who focuses on criticism of Islam and Islamism. Uh, he's a founder and director of Middle East Forum, a conservative think tank, as well as founder of Campus Watch a controversial organization that states its mission to be critiquing poor scholarship uh, concerning the Middle East, but which has been characterized by some critics as a vehicle for harassing scholars critical of Israel. Uh, wow. Peeps, what was it called? Uh, it's called Campus Watch. Uh, Peeps has often been characterized as a conservative or neoconservative. Well, that's shocking. Mm-hmm. His 2003 nomination by George Bush to the Board of Directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace was protested by Democratic leaders, Arab American groups, and civil rights activists who challenged his allegedly rightist views and offstated belief that force was the most effective remedy to conflict. It's another piece of data there. Mm-hmm. The Washington Post editorialized his selection as a cruel joke. The Bush administration sidestepped the opposition with a recess appointment. So... He was put in just like Gaffney was. Not he could, They couldn't get approval for these controversial figures. They made recess appointments for him. Mm, okay. okay. A critic of the Obama administration, Peeps has written in support of a preemptive strike on Iran, which Peeps believes is preparing a nuclear bomb. In 2010, he cautioned that Iran could launch an electromagnetic pulse attack on the U.S., devastating the country, which is what Gaffney was talking about. Electromagnetic pulse attack. Yeah, you know, like a bomb high in the atmosphere. Okay. According to Peeps, attacking Iran would cause Americans to rally around the flag, conferring domestic political advantage to the administration. Just as 911 caused voters to forget George Bush's meandering early months. But she's on a good reason to drop bombs on people, is to get political, you know, support. So he's trying to suggest this is a good way that it worked well for Bush. LBJ didn't have any qualms about it. No, 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 no. Uh, Peeps has written or co-written more than a dozen books and columns in many newspapers. He participates in discussion panels on television. uh, And he was an advisor to Rudolph Giuliani's 2008 campaign. Um, um, Just a few little bits about him. He's an interesting guy here. Am I boring you with this? No, I'm just like, well, I hear all this me. stuff. I keep wanting to like look up yeah. the things you say. Uh, that's why I'm trying to keep my computer down. But that's like, okay. Oh, I just, I've got to check it. It's got to, it's compelling. Yeah. Well, Peeps attended the Harvard preschool and then developed a private school education partly abroad. He enrolled in Harvard where his father was a professor in the fall of 67. His mm-hmm. first two years he studied mathematics, but he said, I wasn't smart enough, so I chose to become a historian. He said that he found the material too abstract. Um, So I guess he needed some real clear, like very simplistic views. Yeah. Very simplistic views for this kind of material. 
He credits visits to the Sahara Desert in 68 and Sinai in 69 for his piquing his interest in the Arabic language and visits to Niger and Tunisia for piquing his interest in the Islamic world. He changed his major to Middle East history. For the next two years, Peeps studied Arabic and Middle East, obtaining a B.A. in history in 71. Um, his senior thesis was titled A Medieval Islamic Debate, uh, The World Created in Eternity. Um, let me just skip down here. Um, uh, he actually got a Ph.D. in Islamic history, which is very interesting. Hmm. Um, served in a policy planning staff at the State Department. Um he retired from academia after 86, uh, although in 2007 he taught a course called International Relations, Islam, and Politics at Pepperdine University. Um, uh, Peeps told an interviewer from Harvard Magazine that he has the simple politics of a truck driver, not the complex ones of an academic. My viewpoint is not congenial with institutions of higher learning. So okay. simple simple views, okay? Um, he's worked in a bunch of different think tanks the Foreign Policy Institute, uh, and then in 2002, he established Campus Watch as a project of the Middle East Forum. Uh, George Bush nominated him for the board of the United States Institute of Peace, uh, and after a filibuster by the Democratic Centers, he obtained it by recess appointment. Um, hmm. Peep's think tank in the Middle East Forum was established established a website in 2002 called Campus Watch, which identified what it saw five problems in the teaching of Middle Eastern studies at American universities. Analytical failures, the mixing of politics with scholarship, intolerance of alternative views, apologetics, and the abuse of power over students. Um, through, through Campus Watch, Peeps encouraged students and faculty to submit information on Middle East-related scholarship, lectures, classes, demonstrations, and other activities to Campus Watch. So you wanna, they wanted them to spy on their teachers? Yeah. Uh, the project was accused of McCarthy-esque intimidation of professors who criticized Israel when it published dossiers on eight professors it thought hostile to America. Uh, in protest, more than 100 academics demanded to be added to what some called a blacklist. Right on. Uh, in 2002, Campus Watch removed the dossiers from their website. Okay. Um, uh, he has attracted both condemnation and praise. Uh, conservative Jewish columnist Jeff Jacoby writes, to hear his critics tell it, Peeps is an Islamophobe, but in J Jacoby's view, these are gross and vicious libels. Okay, um, so one side thinks he's awesome, the other side thinks he's dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I, I've got, I don't want to bore everybody here. I, if, I tell you what, if you just want to start reading on him, there's a long entry just on Wikipedia that's referenced on this. Um, and, and read uh, about him because he's one of the key players in this. Uh, he's described in the nation as an anti-Arab propagandist who built his career out of distortion, twisting words, quoting people out of context, and stretching the truth to suit his purchase, purpose. James Zogby argues that Peeps possesses an obsessive hatred of all things Muslim and that Peeps is to Muslims what David Duke is to African Americans. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, a fellow supporter of the Iraq War and critic of political Islam, has also criticized Peeps, arguing that Peeps pursues an intolerant agenda, confuses scholarship with propaganda, and pursues petty vendettas with scant regard for objectivity. Um, That's um, those are some powerful words <laughs> from a public figure. Yeah, uh, he says, uh, you know, when he had this problem with his nomination. Uh, 
while defending Peep's nomination, White House spokesman Ari Fleischer distanced Bush from Peep's views, mm-hmm. saying that Bush disagrees with Peep's about whether Islam is a peaceful religion. Um, he has sparked local controversies as an invited speaker in college campuses. Um, let me let me just skip down a few things mm-hmm. here. Um, it says uh, Esposito, a writer writing about him, says that Peep's methodology is as legitimate as equating all American Jews who have migrated to Israel with Dr. Baruch Goldstein, an American physician who immigrated to Israel and later slaughtered 25 Muslims at prayer in a Hebrew mosque. Um, wow. That's this is sort of how he, uh, you know he. he they are uh, having issues with him saying that 10 to 15% of the world's Muslims are militants. Okay. Um, and it says, radical and moderate Islam. Peeps has long expressed a concern about what he calls the danger of radical and militant Islam to the Western world. In 85, he wrote Middle East Insight that the scope of the radical fundamentalist ambition poses novel problems, and the intensity of the onslaught against the United States makes solutions urgent. Um he says, I noticed by most Westerners, war has been unilaterally declared on Europe and the United States. Um, hmm. And he he said that the mid- Oklahoma City bombing had a Middle Eastern trait. Um, what does that mean? That they were up to it, I guess. That that middle secretly Middle Easterners were involved? Yeah. They're at Elohim City? He told at USA Today that the U.S. was under attack and that Islamic fundamentalists are targeting us. Um, so there, there's a whole lot more that's that's a, a little bit more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, says Peeps is a supporter of Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict, an opponent of the Palestinian state. Uh, he says in his commentary in April '90 that there can be either an Israel or a Palestine, but not both. To those who ask why the Palestinians must be deprived of the state, the answer is simple. Uh, grant them one and you set in motion a chain of events that will lead to either the extinction or uh, its extinction or the extinction of Israel. Um, he's a big he's a big land for peace guy is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, facetious of course. He expressed his opposition to Egyptian Hosni Bazarik's president's concerned prediction that the war in Iraq will have horrible consequences and that terrorism will be aggravated. Um uh, though this concern was echoed by other politicians, uh, Peeps argued that the precise opposite is most likely to happen. The war in Iraq will lead to a reduction in terrorism. Um, but however later, he did say that, that Mubarak had it right and he had it wrong. Um, hmm. And now he's saying that President Barack Obama gave orders for the U.S. military to destroy Iran's nuclear weapon capacity. The time to act is now. Um so he says that unilateral U.S. bombing of Iran would require few boots on the ground and entail relatively few casualties. Um, so that gives you a little feel of what he's up to. There's a whole lot more that I'm skipping over here, but he is a guy I see frequently on TV. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I don't see him at all. Yeah, that's because your TV has an axe in the middle of it, right? Fall back. Sorry if that was a little long. Um, but what, there is one thing that these guys have all in common that these that these people were funding, and that is the project for the uh, new American century. P. 
Peanut. You're familiar with that, right? Peanut. Yep. There's some information. We let's go to a story for you, but I want to talk a little bit about Peanut when I come back. Okay. Well, because these guys are all tied in to Peanut that mm-hmm. I'm talking about, and uh, the funding is going through the same groups. Okay. Um, I kind of have like a little twofer here, and I'll kind of keep it sure. Keep it okay. short. Lay it on. Uh, you know, in in just in an effort to try and figure out what's really going on with Libya and what's mm-hmm. really going on with the rest of the world. Um, this is probably old news to everybody else, but uh, this this was dated today. Uh, CIA operatives gathering intelligence in Libya from, as I said, NPR. The CIA sent a small covert team into rebel held eastern Libya while the White House debates whether to arm the opposition. The operatives are in Libya to gather intelligence to help direct NATO airstrikes and to help train inexperienced rebel fighters. The CIA team is there to train them how to shoot, how to fight, how to have military discipline. Uh, they are joining a team of former Libyan military officials who are now training about 30,000 young Libyans in the rebel stronghold to also improve discipline and improve communications and make it into a more coherent fighting force. Um, the team's deployment was authorized after President Obama signed what's called a finding, a legal step necessary before the CIA can carry out secret operations, NPR's Tom Bowman reported. The move puts the U.S. squarely on the side of the rebels. Uh, they'll no longer be able to say that the coalition is there only to protect civilians, said Bowman. Um, so I read this, and, you know, there's a longer, longer stuff. Uh, of course, you know, they said there's been no American... There'll be no American ground troops and mm-hmm. all that, and now we find the CIA in there. Right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, here's an interesting one. Libyan rebel leader spent much of past 20 years in suburban Virginia. Oh, is that right? Yeah. The new leader of Libya's opposition military spent the last two decades in suburban Virginia, but felt compelled, even in his late 60s, to return to the battlefield in his homeland, according to the people who know him. Uh, Khalifa Hifter was once a top military commander for Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, but after a disastrous military adventure in Chad in the late 1980s, Hifter switched to the anti-Qaddafi opposition. In the early 1990s, he moved to suburban Virginia, where he established a life, but maintained ties to anti-Qaddafi groups. Late last week, Hifter was appointed to lead the rebel army, which has been in chaos for weeks. His name's not Hifter, is it? Uh... H H I F T E R Hifter. Okay. That'd be that'd be close to Nostradamus's guy. Remember he talked about uh, Hifter. Hifter Hitler. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Hifter, uh, I believe. Yeah. He is the third such leader in less than a month. And rebels interviewed in Libya openly voiced distrust for the most recent recent leader, Abdel Fattah Yunus, who had been at Qaddafi's side until just a month ago. At a news conference Thursday, the rebels' military spokesman says Yunus will stay at Hifter's. As stay as Hifter's chief of staff and added that the military, such as it is, would need weeks, quote, of training. Uh, Libyans, every single one of them, they hate that guy so much, uh, they will do whatever it takes, uh, says uh, um, Abdel Salam Bader of Richmond, Virginia, who, said he's known, who says he had known Hifter all his life, including back in Libya. Libya. According to Batter and another friend in the U.S., a Georgia-based Libyan activist named Salami al-Hassi, Hifter left for Libya two weeks ago. Um, Al-Hassi said he made the decision to go to inside Libya with his military experience and with his strong relationship with officers on many levels of rank. He decided to go and see the possibility of participating in the military effort against Gaddafi. 
He added that Hifter is very popular among members of the Libyan army, and he's the most experienced person in the whole Libyan army. He acted out of a sense of national responsibility, Al-Hasi says. Um, Omar Ekhidi, uh, a Libyan expa expatriate journalist based in Holland, said in an interview that the opposition force, forces are getting more organized than they were at the beginning. Uh, interestingly, since coming to the United States in the 19, early 1990s, Hifters lived in suburban Virginia outside Washington, D.C. Uh, his buddy Al Badr said he was unsure exactly what Hifter did to support himself that whole time and that Hifter primarily focused on helping his large family. <laughs> what a... What a unique trait. Yeah. You know, a lot of these world leaders had, had done a tour in the U.S. Like, well, even Tojo, wasn't he the, the the big mastermind there in Japan before World War II? And he was trained here, so that's why he knew America. Something like that, yeah. That's why he told them don't attack, because he knew how massive the infrastructure was of the yeah. U.S., you know. Mm -hmm. As I understand in Japan, they all believed that we were covered in forest from coast to coast, mm -hmm. and that's why they had that plan to send those balloons over. Yeah, we'd light the, the whole fire. place on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have uh, part two of the twofer, or was that the twofer? That, that, was, that was the second okay, part of the twofer. All. The we'll first one all. was CIA operatives gathering yeah. intelligence in Libya, and the second one was this yeah. Libyan rebel leader spent much of his past 20 years in suburban Virginia, and it turns out that uh, this guy who knew him his whole life didn't know exactly what he was doing for most of those 20 years, like as far as a job. Could have been groomed. Um, I'm sure it was. I'm sure he was just a fantastic Scrabble player mm -hmm. or something. You never know. He could have like waited tables for us while we were visiting there or something. He was, he, I'm sure he was a monster at the late night backgammon. Could have been. Or, could have been. Uh, well, it's nice to have stories that are like from the last. X number of years compared to what I'm going through here. Uh -huh. But um, one of the key organizations that these people in the anti-Sharia cabal are mm -hmm. involved with and, and, and is being funded along with their group, it relates to this original project for a new American century. A lot of people are familiar with it or PNAC, mm -hmm. but if I could just get people up to speed on a few pieces that I think it's important for them to know, because it's like the mindset of knowing that they don't, uh, well, you, you just talked about that uh, Group B thing, about how yep. basically we have to exaggerate our enemy to be able to get resources to come in, and the same group are writing things about Islam. Okay, the um, pro uh, Project for the New American Century, PNAC, this is just, a, again, a Wikipedia entry. I've got other more detailed stuff on these things, but this is just to introduce people to mm -hmm. these things. Was an American think tank based in Washington D.C. lasted from '97 to 2006. It was co-founded as a non-profit educational organization by neoconservatives William Crystal and Robert Kagan. Again, Bill Crystal is every night he's on Fox News. He's one of their main people mm -hmm. there. Okay, he, he I think he does the Weekly Standard. I think that's his. Oh, really? Okay. Magazine. Okay. The PNAC stated goal was to promote American global leadership. Fundamental to the PNAC was the view that American leadership is both good for America and good for the world, and support for American empire, and support for a Reaganite policy of military strength with moral clarity. The PNAC exerted influence on high-level U.S. government officials and the administration of U.S. President George W. Bush, and affected the Bush administration's development of military and foreign policies, especially involving national security in the Iraq War. Okay, their first public act. 
was releasing a statement of principles on June 3, 1997, which was signed by both its members and a variety of other notable conservative politicians uh, see, and, uh, and journalists. The statement began by framing a series of questions which the rest of the document proposes to answer. Now, this reveals the mindset that these gentlemen on the Sharia work with. Mm-hmm. As the 20th century draw, draws to a close, the United States stands as the world's preeminent power. Having led the West to victory in the Cold War, America faces an opportunity and a challenge. Does the United States have the vision to build upon the achievement of the last past decade? Does the United States have the resolve to shape a new century favorable to American principles and interests? American Empire. Mm-hmm. In response to these questions, the PNAC states its aim is to remind America of lessons learned from American history, drawing on the following four consequences for America in 1997. We need to increase defense spending significantly if we are to carry out our global responsibilities today and modernize our armed forces for the future. We need to strengthen our ties to democratic allies and challenge regimes hostile to our interests and values. We need to promote the cause of political and economic freedom abroad, and we need to accept responsibility for America's unique role in preserving and extending an international order, new world order, mm-hmm. friendly to our security, our prosperity, and our principles. Okay. Great. Uh, one of the first things they did was call for a regime change in Iraq during the Clinton years. The goal of regime change in Iraq remained the consistent position of PNAC throughout the 1997-2000 Iraq disarmament crisis. On January 16, 1998, following perceived Iraqi unwillingness to cooperate with UN's weapons inspections, members of the PNAC, including Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, and uh, Robert Zolik, drafted an open letter to President Bill Clinton, posted on its website, urging President Clinton to remove Saddam Hussein from power using U.S. diplomatic, political, and military power. So back then, that was the plan. Okay. Crystal uh, called again for a regime change in an editorial on his online magazine, The Weekly Standard. Any sustained bombing and missile campaign against Iraq should be part of any overall political military strategy aimed at removing Saddam from power. Hmm. Okay. Um, Nice. Yeah. Okay, so they continued on with their uh, this report uh, in 2000 called Rebuilding America's Defenses. The report, which lists uh, Project Chairman Donald Kagan and Gary Schmidt and Principal Author Thomas Donnelly, quotes from the PNAC's 97 Statement of Principles and proceeds from the belief that America should seek to preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of U.S. military forces. And it mm-hmm. says that the American peace has proven itself peaceful, stable, and durable. It has, over the last decade, provided the geopolitical geolo- framework for widespread economic growth and the spread of American principles of liberty and democracy. Yet no moment in international politics can be frozen in time. Even a global Pax Americana will not preserve itself. So they got pretty big visions going on here. So they're saying not even, not even a piece of America will preserve itself. We have to go one step higher. Well, and they're saying basically worldwide that we would spread, we'd make the world little Americas, but that you'd have to have a strong military to make people enjoy democracy and freedom. So in other words, once you gave people democracy and freedom, you gotta you're going to sure have a strong military to make sure they love democracy and freedom. Okay? Um, 
Uh, furthermore, in the and it says, what we require is a military that is strong and ready to meet both the present and future challenges, a foreign policy that boldly and purposely promotes America's principles abroad, and national leadership that accepts the United States' global responsibilities. Of course, the the U.S. must be prudent in how it exercises its power. We cannot avoid the responsibilities of global leadership of the costs that are associated with this exercise. America has a vital role in maintaining peace and security in Europe, Asia, and Middle East. If we shirk our responsibilities, we invite challenges to our fundamental interest. The history of the 20th century should have taught us that it is important to shape circumstances before crises emerge and to meet threats before they become dire. The history of the past century should have taught us to embrace the cause of American leadership. Now, if you catch the subtle nuances there, what they're saying is, is that it justifies basically uh, uh, preeminent war, like uh, exactly. preventative that's, war, that's because our interests are paramount. Yeah. That that if if we're going to look after the, the world, basically is there to preserve American interest, and that they have to accept it. So these guys are working from an understanding that this is America's responsibility to be at this vital role maintaining peace and security around the world. Mm-hmm. They, it's not even debated. Like, well, is America supposed to be the policeman of the world? Well, given that that's obviously true, that's where they base how to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. So it's all based upon this this obviousness. Now, um, just a few of things, because this is their fundamental thinking, and it all makes sense what they're doing here. Okay, it says, in relation to the Persian Gulf, citing particularly Iraq and Iran, rebuilding America's defenses states that while the res- unresolved conflict in Iraq uh, provides America's uh, the immediate justification for a U.S. military presence, the need for a substantial American force in the Persian Gulf transcends the issue of the regime of Saddam Hussein. So it was a convenient excuse for a permanent base. Um, okay? I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I'm speechless. Because this is, like, this, they've already said this is exactly you know, that whole thing in Baghdad. It was all an excuse to get the permanent presence there. Okay? Um, it says, over the long term, Iran may well pose as large a threat to U.S. interests in the Persian Gulf as Iraq has. And even should U.S.-Iranian relations improve, even if they improve, retaining forward-based forces in the region would still be an essential element in U.S. security strategy, given the uh, region, would st- uh, given the long-standing American interest in the region. So what they said is, we need excuses to set up these bases in Baghdad, like that huge embassy and in Kabul and things. Okay, on September 20th, 2001. Okay. Nine days after the September 11th attacks, mm-hmm. okay, nine days, the PNAC sent a letter to President Bush advocating a determined effort to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq or regime change. This is nine days after 911. You know, they're still mulling over going into Afghanistan, okay? Mm-hmm. He says, uh, even if evidence does not link Iraq directly to the attack, any strategy aiming at the eradication of terrorism and its sponsors must include a determined effort to re- remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Failure to undertake an effort will constitute an early and perhaps decisive surrender in the war on international terrorism. Hmm. Okay? No even hint that he was involved, but what they're saying is this is the opportunity. So, you know, Bush gets a lot of the heat for being the one to go into Iraq, and mm-hmm. he may have started it. PNAC had, had it all along planned to go into Iraq and establish his base in their own writing. Okay? From 2001 to 2002, 
that the co-founders and other members of the PNAC published articles supporting the United States invasion of Iraq. Uh, so that's where you see on the news and the cable news sort of pumping it up. On its website, the PNAC promoted its point of view that leaving Saddam Hussein in power would be surrender to terrorism. Okay. Uh, do you mind if I can I share a little bit more about this or am I so getting lost? So, I mean, all this like, stuff was engineered. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if everybody knew these details about PNAC. PNAC co-founder Richard Kagan countered uh, criticism. Um, well, let me just say that, for example, the rest of the world didn't like this too much. And one of the uh, persons from the U.K. says that to pretend that this battle, coming in Iraq, begins and ends in Iraq, requires a willful denial uh, of the context in which it occurs. That context is a blunt attempt by the superpower to reshape the world to suit itself. And PNAC co-founder Robert Kagan countered such criticism in a statement during a debate on whether or not the United States is or should be an empire. So they asked him directly this, and he says, There is a vital distinction between being powerful, even most powerful in the world, and being an empire. Cultural expansion does not equal imperialism, and there is no such thing as cultural imperialism. If America is an empire then why was it unable to mobilize its subjects to support the war against Saddam Hussein? America is not an empire, and its power stems from voluntary associations and alliances. American hegemony is relatively well uh, accepted because people all over the world know that U.S. forces will eventually withdraw from the occupied territories. Mm, How how many have have we withdrawn from? The effect of declaring that the United States is an empire would not only be factually wrong, but strategically catastrophic. In other words, it wouldn't look good. Uh, Contrary to the exploitative purposes of the British, the American intentions of spreading democracy and individual rights are incompatible with the notion of an empire. The genius of American power is expressed in the movie The Godfather II, where, like Hyman Roth, the United States has always made money for its partners. Hmm. Now, who's his partners? The guys running the show and these tin pot dictators? Okay, America has not turned countries in which it has intervened into its deserts. It's enriched them. Even the Russians knew they could surrender after the Cold War without being subjected to occupation. Okay, now here's here is the critical new Pearl Harbor thing, okay? Yeah. You've heard about this. Yeah. Um, in Section 5 of this document, entitled Creating Tomorrow's Dominant Force, includes the sentence... Uh, this is just before 911. Further, the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent from some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. Mm. Though arguing that Bush administration PNAC members were complicit in those attacks, other social critics, such as commentator Manuel Valenzuela and journalist Mark Danner, uh, journalist John Pilger, in the new statement, and the former editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, all argue that PNAC members used the advances now on one as the Pearl Harbor that they needed, an opportunity to capitalize, uh, in Pilger's words, in order to enact long-determined t- plans. Inexperienced, um, former U.S. Congressman uh, Lionel Van Dierlen and the labor uh, MP and father of the House of Commons, Tam Daliel, criticized PNAC for promoting policies which supported an idealized version of war. 
even though only a handful of PNAC members have served in the military or if they served even in combat. Um, they quote in the BBC here, it says, Their project for the new American century signal enterprise was the invasion of Iraq and their failure to produce results is clear. Precisely the opposite has happened. The U.S. use of force has been seen as doing wrong and is inflaming a region that has been less than susceptible to democracy. Their plan has fallen on hard times. There were flaws in the conception and horrendously bad execution. The neocons have been undone by their own ideas and the incompetence of the Bush administration. And uh, in discovering and talking about this report, Neil McKay from the Scottish Sunday Herald says, This is garbage from right-wing think tanks stuffed with chicken hawks, men who have never seen the horror of war but are in love with the idea of war. Uh, men, uh, men like Cheney, who were draft dodgers in the Vietnam War. These are the thought processes of fantasist Americans who want control of the world. Elliot Cohen, a signatory to PNAC, responded in the Washington Post. There is no evidence that generals as a class make wiser soldier statesmen uh, or national security policy makers than civilians. There's no sense that a general would know more about that in a war. George Marshall, our greatest soldier statement after George Washington, opposed shipping arms to Britain in 1940. His boss, Franklin Roosevelt, with nary a day in uniform, thought otherwise. Whose judgment looks better? So they see FDR's involvement, you know, and sort of going behind the country in war was obviously a better choice. The television program Frontline, broadcast on PBS, presented the PNAC's letter to President Clinton as a notable event in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Um, It says in uh, the signatories to PNAC's letter to Clinton uh, included later Bush administration officials, Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, John Bolton, Richard Armitage, and Elliot Abrams. So these are the guys who became all of the the guys running this for George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. PNAC is where they all got together. Uh, the guys who runs it, the co-founder chairman is William Crystal, the guy from the Weekly Standard who's main guy Fox News. He's the neoconservative movement. That's right. He's the guy who started all this. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's some other people. Gary Bauer. You know who Gary Bauer is? Gary Bauer is the main Sounds guy. So familiar. He's the main guy for um, conservative Christians. Christian, all Christian organizations. He speaks just to Christian groups. He ran for president with the evangelical leadership. William Bennett. Um, Gotta watch them Bennett. Jeb Bush. Richard Cheney. Steve Forbes. Okay, these are guys signed on. Frank Gaffney. Scooter Libby. You know, he's in jail now. Uh, Dan Forth Quayle. Dan Quayle. Donald Rumsfeld. Paul Wolfowitz. Richard Armitage. Gar- okay, I mentioned Gary Bauer. John Bolton. The guy who hasn't seen a war he didn't like. Uh, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick. Charles Krauthammer. Another guy on every night on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, Rich Lowry. Another guy who's on all him. John McCain. Daniel Peeps. Donald Rumsfeld. and Wolfowich and James Woolsey. Hmm. You see the same players come into these neocon outfits, don't you? Yeah. Um, well, the the logical leap that you have to make... From, you know, you have to divorce yourself from absolute morality to be able to say that, you know, we need to we need to invent an external threat and work hard for that, you know, 
to be maintain our hegemony in our in our ideology is the main thing doing it and whatever it takes to get there now those were the most boring documents i have thanks for putting up with those give us something but i wanted to see i want to establish a thinking this is the fundamental thinking that makes their agenda much clearer to actually yeah. see through check out you, so what's look, going on yeah look out leo look up leo strauss man you need to look up leo strauss well, I, I do know he's the father. And most of these guys come from a Trotskyite background. A Trotsky communist background is where Strauss and others came from. Yeah, Strauss. In fact, Strauss makes no bounds about that, I believe. He says, yeah, we just, I'm remaking a lot of Strauss's or Trotsky's sort of political theories into a different, you know, framework. Right. Um, well, I got a lot of stories here. Let's see. I tell you what, where, where my stuff leads, that was just the background. It goes darker after really? I read this. Yeah. Okay. I really want to hear it. So let me just let me. No, just, I don't want to cut your stuff. Well, I'm yeah, just but I'm, I'm uh, your stuff is a hundred times more interesting than I have. Well, about that. Okay. Tell you what, I'll just give you here's some palate cleanser. Go ahead. Here's here's Good. a transcript from uh, uh, a little debate that Ed Schultz had with uh, Jeremy Scahill recently. Okay. Uh, he says, I take President, this is Ed Schultz speaking, I take President Obama's word for it that troops will not be engaged on the ground. Um, and then Scahill later on here makes a, uh, Scahill makes a, a, a passing reference to saying, your president. Uh, Schultz, uh, Schultz then asks him, uh, my President Obama? Is he your president too, Jeremy? Is he your president too? Uh, Jeremy Scahill says, I'm not a member of the U.S. military, which means that I do not have a commander-in-chief. I'm not an employee of the executive branch of the federal government, which means that the occupant of the White House is not my supervisor. Mr. Obama does not preside over me in any sense that I recognize. To the extent we have any relationship at all, Mr. Obama should be considered my subordinate, one of the hired help. He certainly does not have any moral or legal standing to pretend that he can order me to do anything. And if I had the opportunity, I would place him under citizen's arrest for his crimes against the Constitution, <laughs> individual liberty, and the peace of nations, of which his criminal assault on Libya is the most recent, but hardly the only example. And that was it. <laughs> it just, it was like the best rejoinder ever. could be, be more clear cut. Yeah. So that was, that was him on, uh, I, think, I believe it was MSNBC. What did they say? Um, In response, does it show? Oh, they just started arguing. I watched the whole exchange. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the real that's the real key there. Yeah. So, um, there you go. Uh, now back to the dark stuff. You sure? Yeah, man. Okay. I, I didn't. Well, I didn't. I, I said I want to hear it. I this wanna... is this is going to go a different direction now. Now we're going to talk about right. the people bankrolling and stuff because there are some interesting characters. Okay. Um, I mentioned that Frank Gaffney and his group is sponsored by several groups like the well, the Clarion group doing the videos and things uh-huh. by the Sarah Scaife Foundation. Mm-hmm. And the Sarah Scaife Foundation, um, this is just a, a lot of these are Wikipedia entries, so y'all can look them up. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then just follow the links after that. I, I'm just giving a first level primer to everybody, so you know who the players are to cast your characters, and we can look further in this. Okay, the Sarah Scaife Foundation is one of the American Scaife Foundations. It is controlled by Richard Mellonscape. The foundation does not award grants to individuals. It concentrates its efforts toward causes focused on public policy at a national and international level. 
you know, it's not, not going to worry about poor people needing rent to pay or pay their say, energy. I'm not, I'm not this sure is what stuff where it's, I think I know what they're saying. Well, they're talking about they're saying, groups that turn the the fate of nations and countries and mm-hmm. policy stuff. Okay, they have agendas. Mm-hmm. From '85 to 2003, the organization awarded over 235 million dollars to other organizations. Okay, when they get that kind of budget, that means you can hire a lot of people to work at these groups, like what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The organizations that supported include the George C. Marshall Institute, and guess what else? The Project for the New American Century. Oh, great. Okay, so all those guys we just read about, they were the ones writing their checks at the end of the day. Okay, mm-hmm. now let's find out about this fellow, this Richard Mellon Scaife. Okay, mm-hmm. Richard Mellon Scaife, born in '32, still living, mm-hmm. is an American newspaper publisher and billionaire. He is a guy, by the way, that all this this kind of stuff from the right, you know, the left has George Soros and yeah, Hollywood right. people. Yeah. Scaife is one of the couple of big guys. Everybody knows right. about Rupert Murdoch, but really it's Scaife. Scaife's a yeah. big guy. Scaife owns and publishes the Pittsburgh Tribune Review uh, with $1.2 billion. Uh, Scaife, principal heir to the Mellon Banking Oil and Aluminum Fortune, is number 283 on Forbes 400. Scaife is also known for his financial support of conservative and right-wing public policy organizations for the past two decades. Uh, He has provided support for conservative and libertarian causes in the U.S., mostly through private, nonprofit foundations he controls, the Sarah Scaife Foundation, the Carthage Foundation, the Allegheny Foundation, and until 2001, the Scaife Family Foundation. Uh, Scaife also helped fund the Arkansas Project, which ultimately led to the impeachment proceedings of Bill Clinton. He bankrolled the people who were doing mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Scaife was born in Pittsburgh uh, to to the head of an affluent Pittsburgh family and Sarah Mellon, who was a member of the influential Mellon family, one of the most powerful families in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Mellon Scaife was the niece of the former United States Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon. She and her brother, financier R.K. Mellon, were heirs to the Mellon fortune that included the Mellon Bank and major stakes in Gulf Oil and Alcoa Aluminum. Scaife attended high school at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts. Mm. He was expelled at Yale in the aftermath of a drunken party and later attended University of Pittsburgh where his father was chairman of the board of trustees. I wonder if he had a hard time getting admitted in the school when your you dad's chairman know. of the board. Yep. Scaife graduated with a bachelor's degree in English uh, in 1957. He inherited a good part of the Mellon fortune when his mother died in 72. A portion of the fortune was placed in trust bonds and the rest in foundations. The trust expired in 85, and per tax law, the foundations must give away 5% of their assets per year. Disbursements from each foundation are done through a board of directors. Scaife inherited positions on several corporate boards in 58 when his father, Alan, died. However, his family was estranged from his uncle, uh, and his mother encouraged him to get involved in the family's philanthropic foundations, and he did so, so that formed his life. In 73, he became estranged from his sister Cordella Scaife, May, and he took control of many of the family foundations while Cordella supported her own charities, including Planned Parenthood and the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. So so this guy who's bankrolling all of these right-wing things and family councils is sister's... Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it, he had his involvement with it, too. Oh, really? For the right-wing, yeah. With Scaife as publisher... Oh, you'll find some other people we know connected here. The small circulation newspaper was the chief 
packager of editorials and news columns claiming that the then United States President Bill Clinton or his wife, the First Lady Hillary Clinton, were responsible for the death of Deputy White House Counsel Vince Foster. Scaife, yeah, Scaife paid freelancer Christopher Ruddy to write about the Foster case for the Tribune Review and other right-leaning media. Special Prosecutor Kenneth Starr, appointed to investigate Clinton, concluded that Foster committed suicide. In 2004, Scaife was reported to own 7.2% of Newsmax Media. Have you seen Newsmax on the Internet? No. It's like World Net Daily. Yeah. Uh, a news-based website with a conservative political content founded by Ruddy in 98. In 2009, he reportedly controlled 40% of newsbacks, with Ruddy to 40, 58%. Okay. His, uh, here is some of the reasons why he was involved in politics. You'll find his, he gets his involved in politics. His father, Skay's father, served with the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. Interesting. Precursor of the CIA. Mm-hmm. During World War II, and his family lived in Washington, D.C. for a time. Uh, Scaife involved himself in the 64 presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater, uh, when his mother was acquainted. The inherited Mellon fortune allowed Scaife to pursue his political activism. Um, support for, I uh, see, Scaife gained notoriety for making an end run around weak campaign finance laws to donate $990,000 to a 72 re-election campaign of Richard Nixon. He was not charged with a crime, but about 45000 went to a fund linked to the Watergate scandal. Mm-hmm. Scaife uh, later said he was repulsed by the scandal and refused to speak to Nixon after 73. Um, Scaife was the major backer of the American Spectator, whose Arkansas project set out to find facts about Clinton in which Paula Jones' accusations of sexual harassment against Clinton were first widely publicized. Um, and they debate, you know, how much his involvement was. Regardless of his role, the project was not only accused Clinton of financial and sexual indiscretion, some verified, others not, but also gave root to conspiracist notions that the Clintons collaborated with the CIA to run a drug smuggling operation out of the town of Maine, Arkansas, and that Clinton had arranged for the murder of White House aide Vince Foster as part of a cover-up of the Whitewater scandal. Well, I, I'm, you know... I didn't know that Clinton was involved, but I had long heard that people had been running drugs in and out of Mena, Arkansas, yeah. some of which I think we've covered here. Yeah. The possibility that money from the project had been given to former Clinton associate David Hale, a witness in the Whitewater investigation, led to the appointment of Michael Shaheen as special investigator. Shaheen subpoenaed Scaife, who testified before a federal grand jury. Um, Newsweek reported that Ruddy, the guy that runs it, uh, of Newsmax, praised Clinton for his foundation's global work um, because sometimes Scaife praises these guys and explained that in an interview as well as private lunch that he and Scaife had had with Clinton uh, were due to his shared view with Scaife that Clinton was doing important work in representing the U.S. globally while America was the target of criticism. Isn't that curious? They're, they're complimenting on his global work, okay? Um, Strange for... Yeah, guy who's so right, right, you know, generally being right, being generally into, you know, national right. politics over foreign politics. Now, he's been a big supporter of Rick Santorum, but also Scaife also funded the Western Journalism Center headed by Joseph Farah. Interesting. This was the guy that got him off the ground. Uh, he also uh, was named to the politics list of Pennsylvania's top political activists, okay? Um 
Through, about Pennsylvania, it's like everything out of there is so dark. And, and always contentious politics. Through contacts made at Hoover and elsewhere. Oh, it gets darker, okay? Great. At Hoover and elsewhere, Scaife became a major early supporter of the Heritage Foundation. So you see, he touches all these places, mm-hmm. uh, which has become one of Washington's most influential public policy <laughs> research institutes. He currently serves as vice chairman of the Heritage Foundation Board of Trustees. Uh, here's some other organizations he's founded. The David Horowitz Freedom Center. He's often uh, one you see on TV. Federalist Society, Freedom House. This is a, one that I've been following, Freedom House. The Media Research Center, headed by Brent Bozell, which mm-hmm. is a guy that we will come back to later. Mm-hmm. He gets back to some, some pretty dark things at that time. Um, in 98, and also the Reason Foundation. It says in 98, his foundations were listed among donors to over 100 such groups, to which he had dispersed some $340 million by 2002. Um, the Washington Post, for example, has dubbed him the founding father of the right in 1999. Uh, now, he's the founding father of the right. Scaife has also been a major donor to abortion rights activists, including pl- Planned Parenthood, giving millions to the organization, um, though most such giving stopped in the 70s, according to the Washington Post. Okay, in the late 90s, at the height of Clinton scandal, Scaife continued to provide one, more than $1 million to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the prime benefactor of the Public Broadcasting Service. Okay. Wow. This Strange. Is, this is... Um, his, his tentacles are everywhere. Yeah. He and his foundation have contributed to Sarah Scaife's favorite causes, population control, uh, i.e. Planned Parenthood, and environmental conservation, and others. Mm-hmm. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. Okay. Oh, is this the last? The Steve, yeah, the Steve Kangas incident. Mm-hmm. Okay, on February 19, uh, 1999, former military intelligence specialist and turned progressive writer Steve Kangas committed suicide less than 60 feet from Scaife's office door inside the One Oxford Center in Pittsburgh. Mm. He had been an outspoken critic of SCAFE and believed that SCAFE-funded initiatives posed a danger to the nation. SCAFE hired Rex Armistead and a reporter from the Pittsburgh Tribune to investigate whether or not Kangas had been out to kill SCAFE. Conspiracy theories concerning his death of Kangas continued to flourish in the period afterwards, with some commentators noting the irony when compared with SCAFE's own material support of conspiracy theories regarding the suicide of Vince Foster. Now, um, what what you will find out about this guy is this is going to tie everything back to the beginning of my whole series I've been doing with what he points out. And let me just hit a few more quick points about... Uh, I, I'm going to save Steve Kangas for next week. Okay. Because he was a researcher that did some things on this guy. May have paid with his life for it, possibly. Oh my okay. gosh! Okay. Um, let me just m- mention a few few more things about uh, uh, the Scaife guy. We're going to call it today. This is from Salai, okay. who did an expose on him. Um, uh, as far as his background goes, his um, his mother was a fabulously wealthy Mellon descendant, whom Fortune magazine identified as 57 is one of the eight richest people in America. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is just old money. Okay, the people who talk about him say that he has a love-hate relationship with a lot of people, including himself, said a former close acquaintance. He is at once the most wonderful, generous guy and the most hateful and vindictive one. 
added another person who has observed Scaife up close in Pittsburgh. Whenever he dislikes someone, it's not enough to fire them. They can never work in this town again. Uh, either because they fear his power, his temper, or because they want something out of him, almost all of those who know Scaife are unwilling to say anything critical about him publicly. That is, if they agree to talk about him in, at all. Hmm. Um, he, uh, and he was the key funder of the $2.4 million Arkansas Project, a four-year effort uh, organized through the American Spectator magazine to discredit the president. Um, and he used to pay key whitewater witnesses, and he bankrolled Paula Jones' sexual harassment case against Clinton. So if you ever wondered all that, that stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Somebody's got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Some rich person somewhere is is paying for that. It says, in the 70s, his money fueled the New Right movement that sought to replace the perceived liberal establishment in Washington in media with a new conservative order. Uh, it says, the victory we're celebrating today didn't begin last Tuesday, Heritage Foundation president told a meeting of supporters in 94, just after the re- Republican sweep of the House. They started more than 20 years ago when Dick Scaife had a vision and then uh, to see the need for a conservative intellectual movement in America. These organizations built the intellectual case that was necessary before political leaders like Newt Gingrich could translate their ideas into practical political alternatives. Gingrich, who was also at the meeting, hailed Scaife as a good friend and ally for a long, long time. And I think this may be my last comment I want to make real quick on this uh, last couple here. Um, now, during World War II, while Richard and Cordelia's father, Alan Scaife, served in Europe with the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, the Scaife family lived in Washington. Perhaps it was this once-removed brush with intrigue that lacked the Dick Scaife's growing fascination with conspiracies of all kinds. Mm. He's the kind of person who looks under his bed every night before they go to sleep, said a longtime family acquaintance and prominent Republican. In the early 80s, Scaife told a Philadelphia Inquirer interviewer that the late FBI director J. Edgar Hoover was one of his heroes and that the most influential book he read was The Spike, co-authored by New Week correspondent Arnold de Borchgrave, in which a young reporter finds himself cast as a pawn in the seven Soviet Union's master plot to overtake the world. Mm. So his personality type is one that's always been in conspiracies and th- external threats of people to overtake the world. And he's the one funding this anti-Sharia law uh, circumstance, okay? Mm. Um, and in fact, it says he began first with his donations through family trust and, don- and foundations, this is a Salon article, to fight the Soviet menace. Later, joined by a number of younger conservatives, uh, some with ideas, some with money, Scaife became the biggest funder of the new right, spending a million dollars a year to help establish the Heritage Foundation and other think tanks. Um, I'm going to skip over here to the end. I know we've taken a lot of time on this. It's important. It's um, like some of the most intense stuff we've ever done. Well, I'll just say he says right here, he says, uh, reflecting his continuing obsession that the Republic is in mortal danger. Again, mm-hmm. mortal danger, same kind of thing. If not from uh, one quarter, then another. Scaife told the Heritage Celebration in 94 that the ideological conflicts that have swirled about this nation for half a century now show clear signs of breaking into naked ideological warfare. So, these are the kind of people who are running this thing, and you see a little bit of their mindset. I know that's a little boring, one other background. But this guy, Steve Kangas, when we come back next week, if we have time, I want to talk to you a little bit about him, what he discovered. He discovered some things over in Europe that changed his mind. 
and he got very concerned about Richard Scaife. And I have a manifesto of his I'd like to read next week, if you don't mind. It'll tie up a lot of the things that we're talking about here. And that's not even the darkest stuff I have yet. I have stuff that's going to be a few weeks from now that's going to have some of the most diabolical people we've talked about on this show that's going to tie everything back in together. And I still think I'm only at the tip of the iceberg. So, sorry, that was the most boring part of this series, hopefully, was what you just heard. But I hope you get a (coughs) recurring theme of paranoia, of a sense of entitlement, to take over other nations and other peoples for mm-hmm. our agenda, even a sense of entitlement over fellow Americans, that we know and we have the right to take the agenda of what your opinion is and mm-hmm. enforce it over you and over other people in the world. And they have wealthy people that are very paranoid about something getting ready to happen, and they're they're doing it. And mm-hmm. when I come back, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what they're up to. So what what else you got for us, bro? That's it. I'm, I'm beat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that's pretty. I know. Hey, do we have any listener emails? I do have some listener emails. I have like two quick current stories, if you don't mind. If you've got a, I've got. You can I've, talk something. We'll say it. But yeah. gosh, you, you you've done such such good. I don't want to. I've got one that's real controversial, and I want to talk it over with you to see what what you like, think. Yeah. See if I'm a nut and how I read it. Yeah. Well, maybe we should do that like off air. No. No. I, I wanna I wanna get it out there. It ought to create some good okay hostile emails. You want to? No, you can do one of your stores. Do your okay. stores. I thought we. I mean, I thought we were running late on time. Nah, well, we are, but we've okay. been going so Let long. Let me. I'll, I'll do you one quick one from the sure. Tennessee in here. Sure. Okay. Uh, the EPA is preparing to dramatically increase permissible radioactive releases in drinking water, food, and soil after radiological incidents, quote unquote, according to public employees for environmental responsibility. So, drinking water, there's a massive list here. Drinking water, for example, would have a huge increase in allowable public exposure to radioactivity, the group says. That would include a nearly thousandfold increase in strontium-90, mm. which, is, which is a very, yeah, very right. bad. Right. Uh, a 3,000, 200,000-fold hike for iodine-131. This is the stuff out of the nukes stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's the very stuff they mentioned. An almost 25,000% rise for nickel-63. The new radiation guidance would also allow long-term cleanup standards thousands of times more lax than anything the EPA has ever before accepted, permitting doses to the public that the EPA itself estimates would cause a cancer in as much as every fourth person exposed. Every fourth person? And they're saying that's okay? Yeah. Are they trying to kill us? What do you think? <laughs> We'd cause a cancer to every fourth person. I said, oh, well, let's just raise it to that level. Yeah. So so then, so then all this thinking about how the pharmaceutical industry and the Montanas and places like that, oh, it's impossible. If they knew that this would cause increase in health effects with the stuff we're taking now and Searle and NutraSweet and stuff, that's impossible that they would do that. Yeah. It's um, it's right there. They're there to help us. Yeah. You're, it horrible, sounds like man. they're putting money before. Well, it, that's what the Japanese did in the last week or two to to make everybody feel better. They just doubled the rate that the the by policy that the guys could get uh, the workers doubled. at they Fukushima. Made it, they made it. They made it go up like by sixteen times. There was this one thing where they said, uh, uh, "Just raise the bar." Yeah, they just there was in inside. There's there's like the 25 miles around yeah. the the plant that sort of like 
off limits for everybody except for professionals and mm-hmm. you know people working on the on the 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 nuke reactor there. But within that, there's another larger security where it's yeah. like you guys can still be here, but you got to be checked. Yeah. Inside that thing, they raised it like 16 times what what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So much so that everybody felt better. Yeah. Well, except the guys in there, they didn't feel better because they're no, they're probably starting dead. to get burns. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. It and but they, that would keep them from liability, you know, and, yeah. and the pay widow. Yeah. There was there was um. There, there was, you know, many, many uh, 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 journalists who were hopping mad about that in Japan. Mm-hmm. They said this is all because these people, uh, it's all because these elites just sort of, you know, backslap each other and protect for each other. Meanwhile, meanwhile yeah. we're all the guys getting, you know, killed by radiation while they're sitting in a bathtub yeah. somewhere. So. And as we know, that story's not come out fully. No. But, uh, man, I don't know. That's crazy, man. Yeah. One in four. It says the EPA itself estimates every fourth person exposed. Can I read you something that's controversial? It sounds like I'm a one-trick pony, but I want to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> okay. Because I want to explain something. And the people who are upset at me are going to really be upset after this one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Florida judge defends decision to apply Islamic law in Tampa case. It's Fox News. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this. Okay. Sure. Yep. We haven't talked about it on the show, have we? No. Okay. Florida judge is defending his controversial decision to apply Islamic law instead of state or federal statutes in determining whether an arbitration award was correct. The St. Petersburg Time reports. The case in question involves former trustees of a local Tampa mosque, the Islamic Education Center of Tampa, who are suing because they claim they were unfairly removed as trustees. Hillsborough Circuit Judge Richard Nielsen said that the two parties can seek guidance from the Quran to resolve their dispute, according to MyFoxOrlando.com. Nielsen said that based on testimony under ecclesiastical law, and pursuant to the Quran, Islamic brothers should attempt to resolve a dispute amongst themselves. If Islamic brothers are unable to do so, they can agree to present the dispute to the greater community of Islamic brothers within the mosque or the Muslim community for resolution, he said. The two parties reportedly agreed ahead of time to use an imam and Islamic law to resolve any potential differences through arbitration. Legal observers say that there are several cases in which agreements between two parties can supersede general laws in Florida, like when a couple makes a prenuptial agreement. What the judge has said is that he will apply the Islamic law because that is what the two parties agreed to in their arbitration clause, Shazad Hamed, an attorney with Najam Law Firm in Orlando, told the station. This concept of agreeing to a different set of rules outside of state law is not unusual. In an effort to defend this ruling, Nielsen issued an opinion Tuesday stating, From the outset of learning of the purported arbitration award, the court's concern has been whether there were ecclesiastical principles for dispute resolution involved that would compel the court to adopt the arbitration decision without considering state law. The court has concluded that as to the question of enforceability of the arbitrator's award, the case should proceed under ecclesiastical Islamic law, Nielsen said, according to the St. Petersburg Times. Now, that story is one that has totally enraged the anti-Sharia law people. Mm-hmm. Their worst nightmare is coming true. This is coming true. It's a slippery slope. It's to happen. Well, okay. I mean, can I give my sort of two give, cents? Give your here? two cents. Uh, didn't you say at the beginning that these two people had kind of consented to it? 
They had agreed to it, yes. Yeah. They had okay. agreed that's how they their preference was to solve. Okay, this. so so isn't that isn't that the same as like two people who said, "Look, we want to we want to settle this this dispute like biblically." So the judge says, "Okay." Or well, the irony you mentioned that, and 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 I'm not saying that Bible law and Sharia law are the same by any stretch, but no, what but they just described here and how you do it, ironically, sounds like the exact instructions were given in the New Testament for two Christians, mm-hmm. for two Christians to not go to try to do things in the court, but to actually go to each other, resolve it. And if they can't, go to a group of your you know, fellow believers mm-hmm. to, to resolve it, you know, through the church. So evidently their understanding of that aspect of it is the same as what we would practice. Okay, so? So so what the irony of it is, is if, if they were successful, if, if people who are the anti-Sharia people were successful in stopping that, that same action, legal action, could stop us from doing what Jesus calls us to do in the church. You know, but nobody's thinking about that. You know, uh, brother Derek, who we got to meet this this weekend, yeah, in part yeah. of the Relations Radio Network. He once sent me an email about about how he thinks all of this stuff's going, and he he likened it a lot to uh, to a guy who walks in and he says, "I'll bet I can put this. I'll bet I can." He walks into a bar and he says, "You know, yeah. puts his drink on the thing and he says, i 'I'll bet I can put my hat under this. I can put my. You can put your hat on this, and without touching without touching the hat, I can drink that drink.'" Yeah. And the guy says, okay, you're on. So he looks at it real hard and says, okay, take the hat off. And the guy reaches over, grabs the hat, and looks, and he grabs a drink and drinks it. And he says, see, I got you. And that's exactly what, we ha- what we're having yeah. writ large with all of this stuff. Uh-huh. We're finding uh, an enemy du jour to, to take our own rights away. Yeah. Which would be... Exactly. Exactly. Or as I say, we're tying the noose that we will be hung with ourselves. Well, it's that's oddly sort of a biblical thing that God seems to do. Except you mean he, his punishment? Yeah, when he punishes people it's for an not interesting paying thought. Yep. It's an interesting thought. Not that do what this, they're supposed to do. Well, and also, also he makes them get it by their own devices. Uh, yeah. It's the old Mordecai thing with uh, Haman. Mm-hmm. You know, Haman thinks he's going to like really do in Mordecai. And yeah. he's the one suffering for it. And he tends to, he tends to sort of wait too, and like till after you can't do much, and then yeah. sticks it to you. Yeah, you know. But the the other, just not even talking about religious things. What what the what the attorney was saying is, that basically they entered into define uh, what they call it uh, binding arbitration. Okay. They had their own arbitration and a a technique by which they chose to arbitrate, and the court always prefers for arbitration to occur rather than fill in the courts. The courts are already overtaxed anyway. Mm-hmm. And if two people agree to a set of protocols to resolve it, the court is always going to agree to that. So he, he would have gone against tons of case law otherwise. Now, I'm not an attorney. I don't understand. That's just my understanding. But it will be the, the sounding call that this is the beginning of the end, mm-hmm. that we've now approved Sharia law. If I could read you two commas, this is like a little metaphor of of how people look at this. Okay, I, I saw two comments right below this article, and um, they were like just like the first two. So, mm-hmm. first person says, in response to this article, I think the various headlines reporting on this story are simply efforts to get attention. The most fair and balanced description of this case would be the court affirms parties' business arbitration agreement to apply Islamic law. It might be less attractive, but it's just as newsworthy. He would not, however, encourage the kind of post you have received. The the parties to any business contract entered into freely without coercion may agree to apply any set of rules. 
public policy exceptions exist, Mm -hmm. but they could be explained in the article. They could have agreed to use the rules of the copyrighted and patented game monopoly to resolve business disputes. What kind of... uh, uh, Would that kind of case have called for the same kind of headline? Uh, However, Buford Pusser uh, responds. You know the guy from Walking Tall? Buford Pusser? Yeah, yeah, it says here... (laughs) It's so his response. It's not the real Buford. Post, right, and I hope not. Uh, <laughs> but he responds below. He says, Judge Nielsen, listen up. Any explanation you have for this is nonsense. You are a judge in the USA, subject to the laws of your country. We don't care if your clients agree to work it out by cutting cards or a Ouija board. That is no concern of yours. You have no business telling them that Sharia law can work out their differences. Besides, Sharia law is based on a religion which your law forbids you to participate. Uh, this is this is Buford Buster, an expert in Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Your only concern is what the laws of the United States of America says. And if you want uh, to tell them to just go work it out, fine. But you have no part in telling them to use Sharia law. Got it? Except for the fact that he didn't have to tell them. He was just saying the court didn't have jurisdiction when they had already decided to do it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yep. And then I have, like, a two-sentence one here. Just thought I'd throw right. this out. By the way, um, have you been hearing about the... Loon. Have you, by the way, have you been hearing in the uh, the big things happening in Afghanistan now because Terry Jones, this pastor in Florida, burned a whole bunch of Korans? Yeah. I don't know why they're giving that any airtime at all. Well, he's, he's been... He's got, in, like, a church of, like, 24 people. Well, I have an article that he and, uh, actually... Um, who was the guy we were just talking about earlier? Frank Gaffney. We're battling it out who could get the most attention. Uh, on the anti-Sharia law, they had like two different groups marching at the same time battling it out. But he- here's something different. Uh, did you hear about uh, Huckabee's uh, records missing? His governor Whoa. records. This just came out uh, from Mother Jones Magazine. It says uh, there's a Mike Huckabee mystery that won't go away. Um if you send a public relation, rela- uh, records request seeking documents from his 12-year stint as Arkansas governor, as Mother Jones did recently, uh, and an al- eyebrow-raising reply will come back. The records are unavailable, and the computer hard drives that once contained them were erased and physically destroyed by the Huckabee administration as the governor prepared to leave office and launch a presidential bid. that interesting to you at all? I think any Christian leader, minister, would do that. Uh, I, I wish I could say that I was like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. How transparent do you think that, that administration would be? Oh, uh, very transparent. Would you like some emails before we go? Yeah, that, that's really all I wanted was emails. You didn't want to hear me? I understand. Yeah. Got it. Thanks. Um, this is from uh, Brother Chuck. And uh, let's see here. This goes back Not a ways. Charles Cooper, Chuck. Is no, 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 no. This is this is another, another Chuck. Um, let's see what he says here. He says, again, back to a January email. Sorry, we're so far behind. He says, I gotta, January. He says, I got to tell you. Um, yeah, uh, which interview is this? I, he didn't refer to the interview I'm talking about. Uh, I was really fascinated by the rest of the interview, which I finished today. I elected not to go to the YMCA, instead jogging around my neighborhood in the dark on the ice before sunrise. This was a bad idea. 
I listened for about 45 minutes while terribly spooked about what might be lurking behind every tree I passed. As I heard the interview talking about purging serpents and visions of reptilian creatures with fangs and claws. I think there may be a few of those hanging out in the woods by the baseball field down the road. It must have been on the ayahuasca. Uh, he says, uh, it reminded me of a witch or shaman or sorceress type person we encountered and prayed over while on one of our mission trips to Mexico. She began gagging and purged something during our prayers. I wonder what it was all about. She says, your handling of Adam, that would be Ellen Boss, was commendable, and I was both challenged and blessed by it. First of all, I cannot imagine a scenario in which I would run into such a person. Second, if I did encounter someone like that, I most certainly would not know how to handle it. As I listened to your conversation, I wondered what would happen if I'd had a long flight seated next to Adam. I would most likely not just talk much. I commend you for the positive inquisitive engagement. It was certainly interesting and educational. I'm glad I listened. I suspect such folks are far more numerous than our safe suburban lifestyle knows about, especially in non-Western countries. I know the spirit world is much more apparent and sought. Once again, Future Quake taught me new information and discipled me on how to better love my neighbor. Good work. Awesome. Okay, now now he says, now for the unsolicited advice you didn't ask for. All right. He says, do more of this, interviewing folks whose positions you do not endorse, but to educate your audience. A lot of us won't have many occasions to meet an Adam. Hmm. He says, number two, explain better what you're doing so as not to confuse new listeners, maybe once per each segment. As a podcast listeners, I don't always mentally separate the daily broadcast. This is when we were doing the small one. Yeah. My guess is that a radio scanning new listener would be confused as to why this is on Christian radio. And number three, add a mission statement or more concise, concise types of guests we have statement to your website. I, I, I read what you have and liked it. And when I was trying to convince a friend to listen and maybe later to suggest uh, him as a guest on your show, he became confused and concluded you were an anti-Semitic and declined further interest. Uh, lastly, the burning question Adam left me with. As an ex-Christian, I would have wanted to ask him how genuine was his original conversion to Christ. Did he once upon a time truly repent and trust in Christ for salvation? Uh and now is he truly recanted? Hmm. My guess is that he would say he was a true convert, uh, and now is not. You know where I'm going with this. Was he was he the seeds the birds took? The seed that sprouted and withered, the seed that was choked out. And was he never seed at all? Was he once saved and now is not? Mm-hmm. He says, I'm glad I don't have to determine this. Um Yeah, that's one that I'm happy to leave over to the Lord. Yeah. He says uh uh he says, I generally agree with you, and I really appreciate your approach to reaching out to those not like the t- stereotypical conservatives. I appreciate your outreach to Muslims and non- or pre-believers. For those in the mainstream of evangelicals, I think you should soften the tone about 15% and assume well-intentioned ignorance. For such as them uh, were we only a few years ago. You yourself mentioned in the Ellen Boss Weeks Friday show that you previously supported Bush and the war in Iraq, etc. Mm-hmm. Keep up work. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, warmest regards and highest respect in the coldest snow. There you go. So, uh, anyway, that was that was him. And we're going to hear some more from that guy. Okay. Um, you want one one last one to call her a day? Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I, I don't know. Why? Are you doing okay on time or not? Well, we're going a little long, but we'll, okay. we'll use this and wrap it up. What do you All think? Right. Unless you got another, we got one story. No, no, you want no, no. To I just, you know, I know how I, I just know how hard you work on editing. I know how hard you do this stuff. Thanks for looking at me, buddy. And I appreciate I'm, that. I'm here for you. I appreciate. I, that. I know that our okay. listeners would really 
wish that I would just we would just go for two and a half hours. But you're right. I'm trying to, and you're I right. wouldn't mind either. Although but. some of those stories I read sounded like two and a half hours each. I know they were a little dry. I'm sure and I probably read them fast because I was if, trying to make if it. If our listeners painless. are anything like me, they're like, get that bionic guy to be quiet and let's hear no, more about no, the Aisha Torah. No, no. Well, let's hear from Paul V. What do you say? Yeah, let's man. Close it closer Paul down. Paul V. from Phoenix, right? Uh, I believe, believe so. Yeah, man. Hey, yeah. it was really good to meet Who you, Who was man. there? Yeah, it was really good to you meet you. You listen to Paul V. You probably thought I'd never read this email. It's January 17th. Okay. Sorry about that. But, yeah, we met, flew from Phoenix. Come be with us Paul at the v conference. Paul V. was cool, man. I enjoyed Paul V. It's either that or Paul the Fifth. But I'm going to assume it's Paul V. <laughs> he uh, called. He introduced himself as Paul from Phoenix, so I think it's Paul. Yeah. Paul. Uh, the subject: weird books. Oh, great! Hey, Doctor Future, thought I'd chime in. Looks like one of the predictions for this year has already come to pass. I used to be involved in my church's youth ministry, so I'm friends with a lot of the former youth on Facebook. I just saw one of them make a comment about reading a book called Awakened. Intrigued, I decided to look it up. Turns out there are a couple books out right now with that title, neither of which bold well. The first is part of a book series called The House of Night. Here are some excerpts from Wikipedia about the series. It follows the adventures of Zoe Redbird, a 16-year-old girl who has just become a fledgling vampire and is required to attend the House of Night boarding school in Tulsa. The series uh, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 63 weeks and over 7 million copies in print in North America. The House of Night series is filled with religion. The House of Night religion is, in the words of PC Cast, heavily pagan and Wiccan-based with a huge influx of Native American myth and legend. Outside of the human world, the people of faith is a fictional Protestant religion that is highly intolerant of anything else but their own beliefs. It says in an interview, PC Cast, evidently the author, mm-hmm. has said that she modeled the people of faith on the worst fanatics of all religions, not just Protestantism. Catholicism also plays an important role in later novels, with the fledglings joining forces with Catholic nuns against Kelowna. Keep in mind, these books are being targeted at young teens. Uh, here's the beginning of the synopsis for Awakened. Zoe and Stark reassure their imprint by having sex. What? Here's a second possible candidate f- for the book she's reading. It, too, is being marketed to young teens. The book is Awakened, book one of the Guardian Legacy. Here are some excerpts of the reviews of the book. Awaken is the story of Little Falcon, an extraordinary 16-year-old girl. She is far from your typical teen. After her 16th birthday, she began to hear spirits. She attributes this to her gypsy heritage until one day she meets one of the spirits face-to-face. Awaken, she takes new twists on the traditional story of the angels, nephilims, and demons. It is a powerfully written book brimming with action, adventure, romance, friendship, and suspense. Though the a mixture of imaginative tele, uh, storytelling and well-developed characters, Awaken casts a spell over all readers. I'm sure it does. Adults, teens, and any, somewhere in between. It says, I've been enjoying the angel-themed books that have been going on lately, and this one didn't disappoint. I like that there was a different feel and take on things from the author's perspective, utilizing an otherworldly theme where the Nephil and demon characters came from. It was a nice change from the norm. This is a quote on reading the book. Hmm. Paul concludes by saying, The sheer volume of deception in this generation has to face is mind-boggling and only reinforces the need for parents to teach their children to guard their hearts from the enemy. So, you know, that's something you and I don't have teenage kids, but you see the fruit of some of that in your line of work, don't you? Unfortunately. And you see that this is real. This is not just boys will be boys and girls will be girls. This stuff has real oppression. Yeah, you know what happens, I've noticed, is this new trend, not so much in my line of work, but 
in just in general is that people start going um, they start seeing the fruits of, of, of that sort of type of thinking and rather than because they're so they've been so inundated not to recognize truth yeah they decide that they're oh yeah I can you know hear these voices and stuff and you know what really though is I can control it yeah so you go no 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 you don't understand what's yeah. going on here explain to them and they go yeah 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 that may all be true but I think I can control it and they will pretend to be controlled for a while yeah just like alcohol or drug addiction pretends mm-hmm. to be controlled for a while any addiction mm-hmm. controlled for a while but they will allow themselves to let you get so accustomed to them and before they're so seductive they've taken over and you don't know mm-hmm. you know I live such a sheltered life in my little evangelical no, lifestyle good. Baptist thing that I have no idea and understand how prevalent what Paul was just talking about is in like the average I mean a lot of Christian homes but on the average non-churched home, mm-hmm. I mean, boy, I shudder to think what's hanging up in the rooms of some of these people. And it looks like not only is your ministry going to be important in the future, but even Russ Dizdar's. Yeah. Because a lot of these people are going to be so overcome that they're going to be such worst case, it's going to have to go to our Russ Dizdar's, similar yeah. people. It's, it's, to deal it's with. hard, man. How do you even begin to begin to get them to recognize truth? That's That's what's been under fire, really. And Christians have made about zero attempt to rectify that. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I think we need to start living like the truth. I think that would be really helpful, don't you? Yeah. We do that, maybe. I think old Pyro's ready to call it a day now. He's, here, he's, he's saying Ultraman. He's he's time to. He says, "Go call in, uh, call in Merv. Tell the listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake." FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, I had to put a break in there for Merv and your singing there. So. Well, it's, it's, it's good stuff, though. You, you're, you want to deprogram a little bit with a little Ultraman there? A little Ultraman. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we recommend that to all of you. Go grab your sack of castles, uh, get you some Ultraman to listen to, meditate on this week's Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Hope it wasn't too boring on my end. Apologize if it was. Yeah. We have does. some very intriguing guests coming up mm-hmm. in the next few months, and it's going to be some interesting food for thought. But until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Later. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 quake.